Good morning, everybody. You're feeling good. Good to have you here. Hey, it is true you can teach an old dog new tricks. You're just about to see one <clears throat> with a lot of criticism for two years from the young adults and all of our tech people. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, do something for the first time. And they say, if you want something you never had, you got to do something you've never done. So I'm going to teach you, teach from my iPad today. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, well, for some of you, it's no big deal. But for this old dog, it's like giving up your pacifier. So I do have my pacifier close in case I need my mommy. I hate giving Apple control of my life. And so the fear is like, oh, I'm going to hit a button, I'm going to do something, but hey, you got to start somewhere, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a bit of a shot. Real simple word, and a real, not, not a long one either this morning, which is good, but it's three words that can change your life. And I wish they were easy, they are hard words. Three hard words that can change your whole life, your relationship with God, your marriage, with your children and with relationships. So let's get started. Luke 15, verse 21, it says, His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. You can't help a liar. That was a man's conclusion based on years of experience counseling college students. He said that he faced difficult disciplinary decisions quite often when some of the young adults would break the rules of his group. He said, I've dealt with everything you can imagine. He says, you name it, I've seen it. He said, breaking the rules, cheating, sexual sins, addictions, I've seen it all. But he said, very often we've been able to help these young people get right, get back on a new path, and have great, fruitful lives. But he went on to say that he learned lying has almost become a non-issue today. He said, everybody lies, and they lie all the time. It's almost like it's not even a sin to lie anymore. Uh, maybe it's a fulfillment of Romans 3, verse 13, where St. Paul says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Now, I'm sure he's not just talking about politicians. <laughs> I think he's talking about the human race. And after discussing how people routinely lie to cover up their sin, he offered this conclusion as a counselor. Rick, you can't help a liar. He said you can help anybody struggling with anything as long as they tell the truth, but you can't help a liar because you never know if you're getting the truth. He goes on to say that's not a student problem. That's not a government problem or a celebrity problem. He said that's a human problem in the human race. So he says it leads to the second point. One sign of true repentance is when they tell you something you didn't already know. If you knew A, B, and C, and then the person adds D, E, and F, you know that repentance is deeper than, sorry, I got caught. It always involves coming clean, and coming clean means you own up to the whole pattern of wrongdoing, not just what happened or that you got caught doing. It's called truth from the inside out. It's very hard to come to that place of total honesty with God 
and with other people. And for most of us, it's a continual battle in the human race to be transparent in all of our dealings, especially when we've sinned, because today it's so easy to cover it up. As long as a liar tells you lies, you can't trust anything he says. We live today in a culture of victimization, a culture that rewards us for blaming others. You can remember the shooting maybe that took place a few years ago at Virginia Tech. And after murdering people, the gunman turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. But he left a note that said, quote, you made me do this. Boy, that's a cop out, isn't it? I want to tell the jerk I didn't make you do anything. You chose to do what you did. If you don't take human responsibility, in the Greek language it says, you suck. I am so sick of victimization. Most of the screw-ups in my life are my own fault. And if you can't take 100% responsibility for your life or your marriage or your relationships or your health or your career, you will never get well, ever. And so I'm going to show that to you real simple and prove to you that it's really tough to deal with and to take responsibility. It's easy when we've done wrong to say everybody does it. Everybody cheats on their spouse. Everybody yells at their children. Everybody breaks a promise now and then. Everybody lies a little bit. Everybody covers up their sin. So we live in a culture that encourages people to make excuses. But here's the kicker. We really don't need any encouragement. We are born knowing how to pass the buck and make excuses, aren't we? Yeah. Well, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes to Eve, tricks her into eating the fruit. She offered some to Adam. He ate, knowing the full consequences of what was taking place. Fear enters the human race for the very first time. And Adam and Eve, they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They're filled with fear. They run and hide in the forest. Everything has now changed. Once they walked and talked with God freely, now they're hiding, they're afraid because they don't want their sin to be discovered. And God calls out to Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? And by the way, that wasn't for information. God knew where the dude was. He wondered if Adam knew where Adam was. Where are you, Adam? Adam said, I hid because I was naked. God said, who told you you were naked? Then the dreaded question. God says, like a parent to the child. Have you eaten from that tree I commanded you not to eat from? Now Adam's caught red-handed. He's stripped of all of his excuses, and Adam does what men usually do. <laughs> Genesis 3, verse 12, here it comes. First time in the human race, the woman, sorry ladies, the woman you put here, she gave me, and I ate it. And he passes the buck twice. First he says, not my fault, it's the woman. Oh, and lest I forget, the one you gave me, God. You know, Lord, it was her fault. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. What was I supposed to do? You know, say no, watch her pout all night. Anyway, who put her in the garden? Just reminding you, you did. Wasn't my idea. I'm not complaining, Lord, because she's cute and she's beautiful, but I didn't have this problem when it was just me and the animals. No, you had to go and mess with it. 
bring her here. So here's the first man, the first father of the human race, and he's the first one to pass the buck. The Bible is telling us something significant. It's in our human nature to deny our guilt and to blame other people. And that's what Genesis 3 is all about. It's no coincidence that the first sin led to the first cover-up, the first disobedience led to the first denial, and the first trespassing led to the first buck-passing. In the thousands of years since that day, nothing has changed in the human race and in the human nature. Passing the buck is in our spiritual bloodstream. We do it because Adam did it back then, and he set the pattern. Disobedience leads to guilt. Guilt leads to shame. Shame leads to fear. Fear leads to hiding, which leads to blaming other people. It is a fundamental mark of spiritual health and well-being to say three incredibly hard words. I was wrong. Blessed is the man or woman who can say those words because now you're on your way to an elevator to spiritual health and emotional well-being. If you want a verse to prove it, Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them shall have mercy. God's not concerned how bad your sin was, how long it was. He's just concerned, can you ever acknowledge you did it? and say, it's my fault. God says, if you can confess it, I'll forgive it. But if you cover it up, you will not prosper. So when we sin, we've got two options. One, conceal it. Women use makeup, and they have something called a concealer. Some of you men should try it, but anyway. It covers up blemishes and, and red spots on the skin or freckles if they don't want them. It conceals, it covers, it hides. So to conceal sin means I'm going to pass the buck, I'm going to make excuses, I'm going to rationalize, I'm going to cover it up. And when it happens, God says, you will not prosper. Uh, the Bible says in Psalms 32, 3, our bones waste away, our strength is sapped, we suffer physically, mentally, and spiritually because we conceal and hide our sin. Nothing works right. Or we can confess and renounce our sin. To confess means I own up to what I did. Yes, I did it, and I know it was wrong. I remember, I remember the early years of our marriage. Uh, my wife, when she was stopped by the highway patrol, would always argue. She always got a ticket. Always remember that. I always got let go. She hated that. And I said the main difference was, the main difference was you argued with him, and I shocked him. And he said, sir, do you know how fast you were going? I clocked you. I do, officer. I was doing it. I'm late to a meeting. I, com I willfully was speeding. I know it was wrong. And the guy looks at me a little dumbfounded, not used, not used, quite used to that, at least not back then. And he said, well, Mr. Goblin, you hold it down. I'm going to give you a warning ticket. Now that make her madder than a black widow spider in water. She, and I said, well, look at the difference. The difference is I'm as guilty as you are, but I told him I'm guilty. He's not used to hearing that. What did I get? Mostly, I got mercy. And if you want mercy with God, say I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. It's my fault. And God says, you got it. I'll forgive you. It'll heal marriages. It'll heal relationships. 
just once in a while. If you stay married 50 years and you're not recycling mates, you got to say I was wrong a whole lot. And I don't find it any easier to say today than I did when we got married. Not a bit. Anybody can join me on that one? Isn't it just about hard? I was wrong. It's my fault. And when you take the blame, the, the fight's over. What else can you print? What else can you say? What else can you do? You can't just keep kicking a poor dead dog who's come clean. If you don't, how about a guy named uh, David in the Bible, King David and King Saul? Both were rascals. Both were not nice people. Oh, we got David on stained glass windows in churches. But I want to tell you, he made King Saul look like Walt Disney. He was a lousy father. He was a worse husband. And even as a national leader, he had a shack up affair with Bathsheba, got her pregnant to cover a government up. He got the army, the Pentagon, the military to hide the emails and conceal anything that was taped and got the husband killed. His name was Uriah. You remember that? I wish everybody would remember and quit picking on Mr. Clinton or anybody else. From the very top down, we've had this problem. Here's the difference. When confronted, King Saul said, the people made me. Typical bureaucrat. David said to Nathan the prophet, I'm the man. He didn't even say, well, she's been hitting on me for some time. You know, she got a lot of hormones going on, and, 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 and by the way, and I got a lot of stress carrying the government and the military and all the decisions I make, and you know, my wife doesn't treat me good, and, and uh, she's busy with other things, and Bathsheba makes me feel important, and, and, and he, <laughs> it's so real, isn't it? I mean, he could have. That's what we hear today, but he didn't. He didn't never mention her. I'm the guy. I did it. I did it with knowledge. I did it willfully. I was wrong. I fall on the mercy of God. And here's what's beautiful. Saul gets ripped from the kingdom of God and it's taken away from him. And David goes through a series of some pretty hard consequences and then God puts him back on the throne of Israel and says he's the best king I ever had. God never had any king say, my fault, I was wrong, I'm sorry, forgive me. God says, whoa, never heard that before. Boom. And David comes up to have a heart after God. He wasn't a perfect man, but he had a perfect heart. And when he was wrong, he took full responsibility. Can we do that? Can you do that? Are you going to keep cycling spouses and jobs and churches and friends because you just keep, now you're 65 years old, you're still sucking your thumb, and it's your daddy, and it's them, and it's that church, and it's that job, and it's that person, and it's never me. When I was in business college, before I graduated from University of South Carolina, one of my business classes uh, was taught human relationships and jobs, and they said, if Bill and Mary have a problem, and Bill and Joe have a problem, and Bill and Eddie have a problem, Bill is the problem. Wherever he goes, there's a problem, and it's never his fault. You will not prosper in life if that's your attitude. If you can't take responsibility and ever acknowledge I was wrong. I'm sorry. You will never prosper. But if you can, you can change the course of your entire life. 
And to renounce it after confessing it means I've been going down the wrong path, and now with God's help, I'm going to change that course. I'm going to change the direction of my life. I was wrong. Three hard words. And it's not easy to say, because most people would rather do anything than say, it's my fault, I was wrong. I used to watch Happy Day TV series with the Fonz. Anybody else remember the series? And Richie, Richie would come to him and, and say, uh, go ahead, Fonzie, admit it, you were wrong. And Fonzie would always say, I can still hear it, I was He couldn't get it out. I was So he would say, I was not right. But not right is not the same thing as wrong. If you're wrong, you're wrong. But if you're not right, nobody knows what the heck you are. Sometimes we make excuses so suddenly we don't even realize what we're doing. Dr. Bob Larson in his book uses the following example. Oh, this is cruel. Let's say you're describing an argument you had with your wife. And you say, all I said was, is your mother coming again? Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out you're in trouble the moment those words come out of your mouth. Whenever you preface something with the words, all I said was, after a big storm, you've made a horrible mistake. Those are the four most destructive words in the English language. Because when I say, all I said was, I'm implying I'm sane, I'm logical, I'm loving, you're nuts. <laughs> That's what you're saying. It's not my fault. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. But as long as you say that, you can't be forgiven, relationships remain broken, and you'll struggle with bitterness and resentment all your life. And you'll never have the abundant life Jesus came to provide. As long as you blame others, your life will remain broken and fragmented, and you'll never know wholeness, mental, and spiritual health. Luke chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus tells a story about a young son who felt an urge to leave his father's house. It's a familiar story. It's happened to a lot of families. The young man asked for his portion of the family estate. He took off for a distant land. He spent all of his money. Now, he's broke, he's destitute, he's in a desperate place, he's far from family and far from friends. Although he's ashamed, he hired on with a local farmer who put him to work slopping hogs. Don't forget, this is a Jewish boy, and pork is prohibited. He is so hungry, he finds himself ready to eat with the pigs. And at that precise moment, evidently the light of sobriety went on in his brain. He saw himself in one moment for what he was and what he had become. And most of all, he saw that it was his own rebellion and his own stupidity that had gotten him in such a mess. He wasn't going to blame the father. He wasn't going to blame his older brother. He wasn't going to pretend to be something he wasn't. He knew that moment of self-revelation revealed to him what he had become. And he knew there's only one way back to fix it. And the strange irony is, this guy goes back home, packs up his goods, heads back on this long trip, living with the pigs, and he thought to himself this. Now he's sober-minded. It says he came to himself. He, he got his brain together for the moment, and he said, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go back home, and when I get there, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy even to be called your son. Just make me as one of your hired servants. 
And with that little speech that he just memorized from his own heart, he got up, headed back, gathered up his things, and started on this long journey home. He's still a long way off when the father spotted him down that long road. And before the young man knew what was happening, the father ran to him, threw his arms around him, kissed him, and said, welcome home, son. Now that son said what he had memorized in the pig pen. Daddy, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. No excuses. And remember, the father here is a type of God the Father. The father stopped him immediately. He would hear no more of the speech. The father shouted out to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, find a fatted calf and kill it. Call all the neighbors, spread the good news. Tell everybody you see, this son of mine was dead, he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so the observation here is clear and it focuses on one point. This young man called the prodigal son turned his whole destiny, his whole future, and his whole life around with three words, I have sinned. He said it while he was still living with the pigs. He said it while he was still far from home. He said it while he was still broke and hungry. And those three words turned his whole future and his whole life around. They can help us be whole. You ever watch Dr. Phil? or some of these therapy groups, or uh, even with Oprah or Dr. Drew, and you'll, they'll have a mother and a daughter, or they'll have a, a different people relationally, and they're just screaming at each other. Nobody ever said, well, that was my fault. If you don't think this is hard to say, it's especially hard when you feel you've been wronged. You know, I hated my father's guts. I grew up in a military home with a five-time married father, absent most of the time, passed around with relatives. So I really felt a lousy father, uh, a lousy husband, and I had nothing but pure hatred. Now, Brother Rick, you're a Christian. You're not supposed to hate. That's exactly correct. But may I tell you, I hated. Can we get transparent here? I hated his guts. And I did that for 20 years. And I remember I was in an office staff meeting at James Robinson when Jim Hilton, a local pastor there and friend, came in and taught a message to the staff. It was our Monday morning Bible study or something. And it was on curses and it was on the power of forgiveness and the acknowledgement of our wrong. And he said, it's not so much about them, it's about you. And he said, and, and I felt like I don't want to bring a curse on my family, on my children or on me. I'm over here self-righteous, doing good, honoring God with my life, and I hate that blankety-blank. And God says, you need to call your daddy and apologize. You need to tell him you're wrong. What was I wrong for? My attitude, my hatred, my unforgiveness. And you think, I've done a lot of hard things in my life, and I've, I've been in hard places, taking pain and all kind of stuff physically, uh, all kind of stuff. But that was the most difficult thing I ever did in my Secondly would be telling my wife, I'm sorry, that would be second. But this was the most difficult thing for me. And I remember I said, I've got to do this. It's a matter of life and blessing versus curse. So I went, and I, and I went to that, it, back then we didn't have cell phones, I just pushed, we had 
push-button phones. And every, every button closer to the last number was like a man going to his execution. I thought, oh, Jesus, help. I didn't want to do this. He, the enemy, boy, the enemy will talk. Oh, Lord. and it's all good. He's going to be self-righteous. He's going to say, I told you so. He's going to make you think you're wrong. He's going to be worse now than he was before, and you're going to look stupid. I thought that was a logical argument, but I pressed on knowing God was right, and I pushed those numbers, and my father answered, and I said, Daddy, this is Ricky. I just called to ask you to forgive me for my attitude, my hatred, and my unforgiveness towards you. I was wrong. I'll never, I'll see this till the day I die. Dead silence on the phone. It was like a Mack truck lifted off me. I didn't care what happened then. But then he comes back and said, uh, well, no, it, it, uh, please forgive me. And then the cycle started. Then the ice was broken. And uh, it was very nice. Then I took my father, first class, bought him his, my, his ticket on my dollar, took him to Australia, took him from Australia to South Africa, then through uh, uh, Amsterdam and preaching, and then back home. Paid his whole way, thought that'd be a good way to finish the breach. And it did. And from that moment on, I've never looked back, never had a problem. My dad was saved late in life. My dad was brought before about 10, 12,000 people, prophesied over by Pastor Ray McCauley at Ramo Bible Church in Johannesburg, South Africa. And everything changed from that moment on. About him, oh, he's still a sorry husband, but about me. And I was free. To be able to say, because I was wrong for my attitude, my hatred, and my unforgiveness. Now, why would I tell that? Because I don't doubt there are people in here with the same story. But when I made that thing right, I was absolutely truthful. God says, if you'll humble yourself, I'll exalt you. If you exalt yourself, the proud, I will resist you. There are some powerful stiff arms in the NFL. Take your head off. But when God says, I will resist you, you don't want to go there. God says, if you'll humble yourself, I'll do the exalting. But if you exalt yourself, I'll do your job for you. I'll humble you. And I thought, oh, Jesus, I don't want that. Let me do that job myself. I'll humble myself. And in marriage and in relationships and with God. Think about this. The religious Pharisees are out there in the temple courtyard. Lord, we th they're having a great praise meeting. Lord, thank you. I don't commit adultery. I hadn't got drunk. Never even smoked a cigarette. Lord, I hadn't done this. I pray three times. I tithe. Blah, 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 blah. They're just self-glorifying. This poor extortionist comes in called a publican. He's hanging out with the prostitutes, the pimps. He's got drugs. He's got lots of cash, lots of bling. He extorts money from people for the Roman government for taxes, and he keeps everything above what's required. He's hated by the Jewish people because he's one of them, and he's sticking it to his own people. He walks out into the outer courtyard, won't look up, puts his hands and beats his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus is standing over here with a teaching moment with the disciples. Here's the religious crowd. Here's this wicked guy. What's the difference? The Pharisees think, we're so good, you are lucky to have us, God. And the bad guy says, I stink. I'm a lousy person. Please have mercy and forgive me. And Jesus said, that guy only left church, went home, justified. What was the difference? Responsibility. I have sinned.
I just thought that's quite an amazing thing about how God views things. We think, well, I didn't commit as much sin as him. I, I, shut up. One sin, a hundred sins. You're like going into a mortuary. This guy's been dead three minutes. This guy, three days. This guy, three years. Which one's the most dead? You idiot. They're all dead. <laughs> We've all sinned. Stop it. Lord, forgive me. And that's all it takes. God doesn't make you do penance. God doesn't make you back up. He doesn't make you crawl upstairs. He doesn't make you kiss a statue or burn a candle. He says, you take responsibility for your life. Acknowledge your sin. It's forgiven, forgotten. I'll never remember it again. Get up. Let's go on together in life. I love that. And yet it seems so hard for people to do. And so, here's this kid, we, like us, we try to clean up. We're not going to tell anybody where we are or what we are, so we try to get presentable, brush our teeth, comb our hair, but we still got pig slop under our fingernails. Everybody knows we've been with the pigs. And the story's for everybody who's tired of eating with the pigs. If you're ready to go home, here's the good news. The father, like this father waits for you, standing, open arms. He knows where you've been, knows what condition you're in, knows what you're doing, and He waits for you. The only thing that matters to Him is that you come home. Now, that's what the grace of God provided at Calvary, that Jesus came at—we celebrate Christmas. He really wasn't born on Christmas, but we celebrate His birth because He came to die to redeem us from that sin by His power, not my works. And that's what grace is all about. I can come home. I can be with the Father. I can be forgiven. The slate's wiped clean. I don't have to do anything except put my, my trust in Him and what He did on the cross and be willing to say, I'm wrong. I have sinned. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. And I don't have to live in fear. He'll find me out. He says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I removed your transgressions from you. I won't even think about it. I won't remember it ever again. But it depends on one thing. You have to do what the prodigal did. You have to come to your senses and say, Father, I've sinned. He says, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Ever since Adam, we do two things when we sin. We hide, and then we blame other people. Most of all, I think most people are pretty good at it. We know all the good places to hide, and we've memorized our excuses by the thousands. As long as you do that, you can never be whole. You can never be forgiven. Your refusal to own up to your own sins means you live with that burden hanging around your neck like a millstone. But through Jesus, it's possible for all of us to be forgiven. That's the good news. The bad news is, as long as you refuse to admit you've done anything wrong, then you can't even be forgiven. Therefore, you stay like you are, unforgiven, unhealthy, fragmented, broken, confused, divided, and locked inside the citadel of your own self-justification. But if you can own up to your own mistakes, you can be forgiven. Three hard words that can change your life and your future. I was wrong. And get ready to say it a lot, all through life. I heard a guy say, I was wrong once. <laughs> no, you're wrong twice for saying that. <laughs> Are you ready to say, I was wrong? And I hope the answer is yes, because I would ask, would you like to be forgiven? Would you like to see the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in your life? Would you like to see God do something miraculous in relationships that are the most important to you? Are you willing to say three hard words that lead to freedom? 
then that healing can begin right now. There are children that need to hear parents say on occasion, I was wrong in my judgment on that. What does that build? Trust and transparency with the kid. He doesn't think less of you. He thinks more of you. I had a guy walk several years ago, come in from the staff, sit down privately in my office with tears and tell me something is pretty ugly. He had never been caught. Nobody knew it. It had never been passed on. But out of his own conscience and his own heart, he, he didn't want to live with it. So he came right to me, and he made a full confession. What would you do, Rick? I gave him mercy. Why not? I didn't have to find it out. He came to me. Nobody reported him. It was of his own free will. The Bible says if you confess, God forgives. That's the quickest way. Just get it out in the light. I tell people all the time, let's say you've done something bad. Oh, you, let's say stupid. You sex text something. You took a picture of something you shouldn't. You sent it out in the viral world. Now it's on Facebook. Now it's going all around. And now you're being blackmailed. I've got these pictures. I've got this text. And if you don't do this, I'm going to go to the press or I'm going to go. Let me tell you what my suggestion to you, if you're part of this church, go right to the light. Boldly, like a linebacker coming in on a quarterback, go right for the light. Acknowledge it openly, and the results and fallout will be less than if you allow somebody to leave you in guilt, shame, and fear of exposure. Call their bluff. Go straight for it. Don't ever hide. When you come clean, you're not going to get rejection from me. You're not going to get it from God. You're going to get nothing but mercy, acceptance, and restoration. This is part of being alive in God. God just says, would you acknowledge that? Would you say, I'm sorry for that? God says, okay, kid, good. Wash your hands and let's get ready for supper. Come on home. This is the way life works. Don't live hidden, fear of exposure. You did a bad thing. It's going to come out. And you live tortured. Just acknowledge it. Get it over with. After you tell the truth, what else can you say? All the press can write about a government official. He can write something for a little bit, but pretty much the fire goes out. But ask Nixon about the Watergate tapes, something that could have been non-impeachable and could have been nothing but a little bit of fodder for an opposing party, became a bonfire with a couple of years of denial and failure to take responsibility. Fess up. Man up. Just tell the truth. And with God, you won't have a problem. And with most people, you won't have a problem. And if anybody has a problem because you tell the truth, they suck anyway. Don't worry about it. That's just, sorry, but that's just how I feel about it. They're not important anyway. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.